Well, tis the season for Christmas cards. I love getting Christmas cards. If you send out a Christmas card for your family this year, send one to the Evans household. And um, we really appreciate and enjoy getting those. Just yesterday, Marianne and I received three or four cards from people we haven't seen in a number of years. And it's great to watch children as they're growing up and read updates. And, you know, you'll see a Christmas card and it'll have a beautiful picture of the family. And below it, it will say something like, Joy to the world. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Imagine a Christmas card that went out and it had a picture of a family on it. And right underneath it said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What says Merry Christmas? Like that. This is a weird passage for Advent. I'll freely admit. It's a strange Advent passage. But in the context of our larger theme, it's an important Advent passage, because last week we talked about the idea of waiting. The word Advent means coming, and it's a time in the church year in which the people of God annually sit in expectation and anticipation. We wait on God to appear. So we identify with the people of God from the Old Testament who waited on the first coming of Jesus Christ, born in a manger. And we also now identify in solidarity with Christians around the world who are waiting on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the question that I want to ask of us this morning is, what are we supposed to do in our waiting? As we wait for Jesus to appear, what what is that waiting supposed to look like? And that's where our friend John the Baptist comes in. John the Baptist was the one who was given the commission, as we read in verse 3, to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist tells us what it means for the people of God to wait. What is it that typifies John's ministry? What is it that John calls us to do as we wait? You can summarize it in one word, and I bet you know what it is. The word is repent. Repent. And so this second Sunday of Advent is John the Baptist Sunday. It's a day where we are all being asked to heed the call of John the Baptist. Really, to heed the call of the Holy Spirit. To prepare for Jesus' coming by repentance. So I want to summarize the main idea for us this morning really simply. Here it is. We, want, or we wait and prepare for God by living a life of repentance. That's the main point. We wait and prepare for God by living a life of repentance. Three points. The necessity of repentance, the difficulty of repentance, and the joy of repentance, okay? So first, we look in Matthew chapter 3, and we read very quickly about the necessity of repentance. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer might be better. He wasn't a Baptist. He's probably a Presbyterian. Um, He's actually probably a Pentecostal, to be honest, knowing John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist's ministry uh, is included in all four of the Gospels. And that can't be said about very many of the stories. And so we know that John's ministry was crucial. It was really important. John was an essential figure. And what was his ministry? Well, as I've said, it was one of preparing for the coming of Jesus. And John did this in his preaching ministry. Look at verses 1 and 2. Matthew tells us, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what did he say? He said, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So two questions. What is repentance? And why is repentance necessary in our preparation for Christ's coming? So first, what is repentance? Uh, Literally, the word for repentance means to turn around or to turn away. And in the context of the larger story of the Bible, 
John the Baptist says, repent. And when he says that, he's asking his hearers to reorient their lives around the coming kingdom of God. Throughout our series in the past few months in Genesis 1 through 11, we saw that sin is defined as a transfer of allegiance. A transfer of allegiance from God's kingdom to our kingdom, from God to self. It's making ourselves central and God peripheral at best, right? And so to repent is to transfer our allegiance back to God and away from self. It is to turn away from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. That's what repentance is. Secondly, why is repentance necessary? Well, John the Baptist tells us repentance is necessary because Jesus is coming back. Repentance is necessary because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, as we read in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Look at verse 10. John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's the idea, folks. There are two types of people in the world. Of the seven billion or so people living right now, God sees us all really at the most basic level in two big categories. On the one hand, there are those who have confessed and repented of rebellion against him, against God. And on the other hand, there are those who refuse to confess and repent of rebellion against him. And to any who confess and repent, God grants in Jesus Christ total and absolute forgiveness. But to those who refuse to confess and repent, to those who continue to live in their own kingdom, God will come in judgment. He will cast them into the fire, like we read here, like a fruitless branch away from his blessed presence. And the clear teaching of the scripture and the clear preaching of John the Baptist is that at our core, at our core, every single one of us is naturally in opposition to God. We are all at enmity with God. And we're all, every single one of us, in need of forgiveness. And only the person who is repentant can enter into the presence of God and live with him forever. I love uh, the Indiana Jones movies. And uh, if you'll remember, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, towards the end of the film, Indiana Jones is on his quest to get the Holy Grail. And he gets into this big temple where the Grail allegedly is held. But first he has to go through, you know, three or four booby traps. And his father has spent his life doing research about the Holy Grail. And he has this amazing Grail diary that I was obsessed with as a teenage boy. I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And Indiana Jones has the Grail diary as he enters into this dark chamber with spider webs everywhere. And he's repeating to himself again and again something that his father has written again and again in his diary. Only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent man will pass penitent, repentance. He's one who's humble. He's someone who kneels. And then he says, kneel! And he goes down on his knees just as a blade comes over his head. Thankfully, that's not going to happen to any of you today, hopefully. But the point is that repentance is a humbling yourself. It's getting down on your knees and acknowledging what is true of you before God, that you, by nature, are in opposition to him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever repented? before God? Have you listened to the message of John the Baptist? 
Have you listened to the message of all of the Scripture? And if so, how do you do that? How do you repent? Well, it's done in really three very easy steps. Very simple steps, I should say. First, repentance involves a conviction. A conviction of sin. It means that you know yourself to be guilty of breaking God's good law. It means that you admit that you're a mess and that you can't save yourself. It means that you acknowledge that really you are the source of most of your problems. Repentance involves conviction. Second, repentance involves confession. Confession of sins. It means that you tell God through prayer that you are guilty and a sinner. It means that you admit to him what's true, that you come clean. King David in the Old Testament wrote in Psalm 51, after some of his most grievous sins, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. You admit to God your sin, and then you also confess to those that you have sinned against. You tell them you're sorry. You tell them that you're seeking forgiveness. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So repentance involves a conviction of sin, confession of sin, and then thirdly, it involves ceasing from sin. Repentance is a cease and desist order. It's not just about talking the talk. It's about walking the walk. It's to stop living in a way that displeases God and to begin living in a way that pleases God. The famous reformer Martin Luther Uh, when he nailed his 95 theses to the wall or to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, the first of those 95 theses for the reformation of the Christian church was this. The Christian life should be one of daily repentance. The Christian life should be one of daily repentance. So the call for you and for me this morning, no matter your spiritual condition, no matter if you've been a Christian for decades or if you're not a Christian at all, the call for you right now is to repent of your sin. Tis the season for repentance. That's one of the ways we wait and prepare for the coming of Jesus. And so the Spirit asks, will you repent? The necessity. Secondly, the difficulty. The difficulty of repentance. One of the clear teachings of these verses is that repentance is exceptionally difficult. And it's in particular exceptionally difficult for a particular type of person. For people like a lot of us, I'm convinced. In fact, I think that's the main point of John's interaction with his hearers in verses 7 through 10. Repentance is hard. Why? Why is it hard? Well, it's hard because we don't think we're really that bad. We don't think we're really that bad. One thing I've been seeing a lot in the news lately is this phrase, that's not who I am. Uh, Just this past week, a running back Uh, in the NFL for the Kansas City Chiefs, a guy named Kareem Hunt. Uh, Video evidence came out of him beating up on a woman, and he had lied about it to his team, and the Chiefs, to their credit, cut him immediately, even though he's a really good player. And uh, Hunt did an interview pretty quickly after this with his preferred journalist, and guess what one of the first things he said was? That's not who I am. That's not the real me. And I'm reading that all over the place lately, whether it be in politics, in religious circles, or in the sports world. And we say the same thing in so many instances in our lives when we make a mistake. That's not who I am. Well, listen, repentance requires you to see that actually, yes, that's exactly who you are. It's exactly who you are. Let's think more about that for a minute. Look at the story, and let me ask you, who is John the Baptist talking to here? Look in verse 7. He's speaking to the religious people. 
when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. He gives them this warm welcome, right, that we talked about earlier. Who invited you here, you snakes? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, why does John the Baptist respond in this way to them? It's because they don't really believe. They don't really believe that they need to repent. They see the success of John the Baptist's ministries. He's the new hot thing in religious circles. And so they're coming to be baptized. But John the Baptist knows the same thing Jesus says to them repeatedly. It's all a show. It's all nothing but external religiosity. The religious establishment here in this story is doing exactly what they still do today. And what many of us have always done. They're doing the right things. They're going to church. They're behaving dutifully. And listen, listen, therein lies the big problem. They cannot see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many of us. They cannot see what is essential to see. The main things we need to repent of are not our bad deeds and words and attitudes. I hate to break it to you, but everyone knows that they should repent of bad things. There's nothing unique or significant about that. The main things we need to repent of are our attempts at good deeds. Repentance is difficult because true repentance involves not just turning away from our sin. It involves turning away from our pretended righteousness. It involves turning away from all of our efforts to save ourselves, from all of our moral attempts at self-justification. Listen, that is the difference between Christianity and moralism. It's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. Christianity says we need to repent of our best efforts. Remember last week we read, even our best deeds are nothing but a filthy rag. Moralism says to repent of your failures, but bring your best efforts to the table. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. Moralism is extremely common and always has been. It is the biggest actual religion in the world. It is extremely common today for people to compare themselves with others, notice that they are a lot more decent than most people, and say, if there is a God, he'll certainly receive me. Does that resonate with your experience at all, I wonder? Moralism says, do your best, and then perhaps you can get to God. Christianity says, stop trying to do your best. Because that can never get you to God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and moral religious people today as well, and some of you right here, right now, rely on your morals and your reputation and your families and your achievements and your looks. All sorts of impressive things to help you get to the right place with God. And that's why John the Baptist says, do not presume. Do not presume to say to yourselves, Abraham's our father. Look at my religious resume. Well, I'm going to be a little bit bold with you today. Some of you here this morning have always thought that you were Christians, but really you're not. You're just a moralist. And the reason I feel safe saying that is because San Antonio was full of that. In fact, the reason we planted this church five years ago is for moralists who think they know Jesus to actually begin to experience Jesus in a real way for the first time. Some of you, 
Some of you have never repented of your righteousness. You've only repented of your unrighteousness. Let me break it to you again. (laughs) Every person on the planet knows that they should repent of their unrighteousness. Every person knows they should turn away from bad. There's nothing distinct about that at all. The gospel of Jesus is distinct because it calls you to turn away from your good. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, you're not a Christian. You you might ask, well, how am I supposed to know, Luke? How do I know if I'm just a moralist and not really a Christian? Well, let me just give you a few ways you might know. One, if you have a theoretical-only concept of the Word of God. A real Christian reads the Bible, and to him it's like Hebrews 4. It's living and active. Whereas a moralist never comes under or feels its power. And this is true with our theology as well. Some people can quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism till they're blue in the face verbatim, but they've never experienced an encounter with the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. You know you're a moralist if you've been around the Bible, you've heard sermons, you might even have a good, solid Bible commentary sitting on your coffee table, but it's really never been something that warms your soul from the inside. Secondly, moralists have either a subtle or an obvious sense of moral superiority. And here's why that's the case. If you're relying on your own spiritual achievements on your own morality, on your own religious observance, then you, by definition, are going to have to look down on those who have failed in the same areas. Otherwise, it's going to crush you. So moralists, dead orthodox people, are at the very least just sort of cold. And at the very worst, horribly judgmental towards those who are struggling. They have no warm words of encouragement for them, And a sign of this condition is that these people are not approachable in any way. People don't want to share their problems with moralists because moralists aren't sympathetic at all. And in addition, moralists tend to gossip and be full of backbiting and great defensiveness. Thirdly, and most importantly, in moralism there is a total lack of what I'm calling the inner life. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, calls this the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Romans 3.29. And that's a very vivid image. A circumcised heart is one that is spiritually melted and softened. It means that you have an active prayer life. Not that your prayer life is great all the time, but that you see God as a father. It means that you have a sense of the presence and nearness of God. That is something that a moralist does not have. They may get feelings from time to time when they're caught up in the excitement of a corporate worship service, but by and large, they're radically unsure whether or not God loves them. And so they experience a long-term deadness within. That's not to say that Christians always have great quiet times, but it is to say that there is an inner life. There's a circumcision of the heart. And so the question that the Spirit asks of us through the ministry of John the Baptist is, have you repented not just of the bad things you've done? Have you repented of your pretended righteousness? That's what it means to be a Christian. Have you repented of trying to use your good moral life to please God? That's the call of John the Baptist. That's the call of Advent. That's the way you prepare for the coming of the Lord. 
but it's really, really hard. The necessity, the difficulty, lastly, the joy, the joy of repentance. At this point, I need to tell you a little secret. It's probably not a secret to a lot of you. I've been up here telling you, repent, repent, repent. (laughs) But here's the secret. And I imagine you've experienced this in your own life. You cannot do that. You can't do it on your own. In fact, if all that happens today is you hear me tell you over and over again to repent, to change, to orient your life around God, guess what? Nothing will ever happen. Moralistic churches tell you to repent all the time. You don't just need exhortations to repent. You need power. You need power from the outside to repent. And that's what John's message is. John the Baptist is saying that there is a power that is coming. And it's an outside power. It's a power that's able to make a new creation out of people like us. We didn't read, but look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water. For repentance, but someone is coming after me who's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is saying that it's not the power of our deeds. It's not the power of our inner strength. It's not the power of our spiritual discipline or our faith or even our repentance that works life in us. Rather, it's God's power that gives good deeds and inner strength and spiritual discipline and faith and, yes, repentance. The great theologian St. Augustine famously put this in this way. God grants what he commands. God grants what he commands. Let me try and illustrate that. Uh, When I go play basketball in the park, a block or so from our house with my boys, um, We enjoy hanging out, shooting hoops together. And Ben, my six-year-old, making a second straight appearance in the sermon, uh, Ben loves to dunk the basketball. But Ben's six. And we're playing on a seven-foot goal and a regulation-sized ball. And I'll say, Ben, tomahawk jam. Go. Do it. Now. Can Ben do that? Of course not. Ben, well, actually, Ben's quite a baller for a... Stepping in under league, dominated last year. I'm repenting of my attempts at sports righteousness right here in front of you. Um, ben can't dunk a seven-foot basketball goal with a regulation ball. But what is, what is happening when we play? This is what always happens. Ben will be dribbling up, and he gets close, and I'll come running up behind him. And at the last second, I'll grab him around the waist, and I'll pick him up. And he will just hammer that baby home two-handed and then hang on the rim for a minute just to show off. Right? Ben can't dunk a basketball without my help. And it's the same way with all of our spiritual lives. You cannot do what God commands you to do. You can't do it without his prior help to you. Jesus comes and he graciously gives us the ability to see ourselves rightly, to see ourselves as needy rebels. And then he gives us the ability to turn to God in repentance and in faith. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. He's giving us a message of joy, really. I mean, that's what I think he's saying in that image. God can raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Why use that analogy? Can you see the hope in that sentence, actually? 
Can you see the potential joy just beneath the surface there? Is your heart ever dead, stone, cold like mine? The answer, if we're being honest, is yes. But the point is we worship a God who can take our dead, cold, stone hearts and make us love him. To use the Old Testament language, salvation is when God takes stone hearts and turns them sovereignly into hearts of flesh. That's the message of Advent. That's why Jesus came. Jesus knows that you can't see yourselves rightly. You are blind. You walk in the darkness. He knows that you and I, we can't repent on our own. So Jesus comes in from the outside and by his powerful Holy Spirit works with and through his word to change you and give you the power to see yourself and to run back to the open embrace of Jesus Christ. If you repent of any or every sin in your life today, if you do that today for the first time, or if you do that today for the 10 millionth time, listen to me, that can only be attributed to the work of God's grace in your heart. God's prior work of giving you new birth and of giving you spiritual insight is what leads you to repentance. Now, repentance is indeed our work, just like it's Ben who actually dunks the basketball. I don't dunk the ball for him. He dunks it, but he could never dunk it without my help. And we could never repent without God's help. It's something we must do, but that we can't do, so God enables us to do it. So if any of you this morning, by God's grace, feel convicted of sin, if any of you this morning are convicted of your own sham, fake, dead, lifeless attempts at living a good, decent Christian life, if any of you feel convicted of your own efforts to make yourself look good to God and to others, subtle though those things be, we're masters. We're masters of doing that. If any of you feel convicted of that, the only reason is because the Spirit of Jesus Christ is at work in you and in this place. And the way you respond is by continuing to live a life of repentance. The way you respond is by constantly relying upon God's preceding and ongoing mercy to you. And listen, there's deep joy in that. There's deep joy. Being a Christian is full, it's, as C.S. Lewis says, an explosion of joy. And the reason is because God gives what he commands. You have all you need right here and right now to experience the conviction of sin and the power of repentance and faith. You can turn away from yourself and look to God in faith right now because the Spirit is with us. He will answer you if you call to him. And when you begin to lay down your own efforts and rest in Jesus' effort for you, everything changes. That's what Christmas is about. That's what everything is about. God made this universe to reflect that truth. God made you to know that truth. That is where life and joy and hope is found. Will you believe it and embrace it? Let me close with this. I'm going to read. It's pretty long. I'm just going to warn you. This is a little bit longer than things I normally read, but this is from something called the Diary of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was an 18th century missionary 
to the American Indians. And he died in his early 20s. And Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest American theologian ever, recovered his diary and writes about his diary all the time, which is really the only way we know about David Brainerd. And I'm going to read you a portion of one of David Brainerd's diary entries where he is telling us about, writing about his own conversion at the age of 20. So I want you to listen. It's a little longer. Think of this as like an audio book for just a minute or two, okay? So listen to this. This is David Brainerd at age 20. Now here was the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. The more I sought a soft heart, the more I felt how hard my heart was. And I supposed it must be softened before Christ would accept me. One night I remember in particular when I was walking alone and I had opened such a view of my sin that I feared the ground would cleave asunder under my feet and become my grave. I saw it was impossible for me after the utmost pains to answer the demands of God's law. I saw that it condemned me for selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. Then, after a considerable time spent in such distresses, one morning I was alone, and I saw that all my efforts and projects to procure salvation were utterly in vain. I had thought many times that the difficulties were very great, but now I saw them in a different light, that it was totally impossible to do anything toward delivering myself. The tumult that had been in my mind now quieted. I saw that all my prayers and repentances and feelings and obediences had not laid the least obligation upon God to bestow his salvation on me. Then I realized why they were of no avail. When I had been fasting, praying, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory to feel I was worthy. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior. Then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw so much of its wisdom and suitableness, and excellence, that I wondered how I ever was blind to it. I wondered why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. I felt myself in a new world, and everything about me appeared in a different aspect from before. Have you ever felt the righteousness of Christ? Is he alive to you? Have you encountered the resurrected Jesus? He has come. He will come again. And he will give you the power to see him for who he is. If you ask for it. Let's pray.